be here with you. Um, if you ever happen to go by our Key Biscayne campus, you will notice that right in front of the property next to the new Crossbridge sign, there's a bell. And uh, that bell that's there was rung by President Nixon, January 27, 1973, to end the Vietnam War. Very interesting. The, uh, uh, it was rung at uh, the Key Biscayne Church uh, on that date, and the Nixon Society just built a little stand and, and placed the, that original bell there. So that's kind of cool because, you know, when there's peace... There's sound, there's music. We've been going through a series of sermons now in the book of Esther, and uh, this story that starts with conflict is resolved in peace. And uh, the uh, last chapters of this book have to do with that. This passage that we read has to do with that because the Jews finally found rest from their enemies. That's what we read there in verse 22. And as a result of finding rest and counting rest or relief from their enemies, they're now celebrating. Uh, we read on verse 22 that the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned from them into sorrow, into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts, food to one another, and gifts to the poor. They had found rest from their enemies. Now, I tend to uh, sometimes imagine what would life look like if we had rest and a break from the haters, right? If we had bra a break from our enemies. You know, we've been saying all throughout this series that uh, we would love for you to see yourself as someone that God wants to use in a profound way, in the same way that he has used Esther for the redemption of all the Jews at a specific time that lived in Persia. And uh, we've been trying to encourage you in that sense, but one of the things that we need to deal with and one of the things that keeps us discouraged and keeps us from fulfilling that calling and that desire that God has for each and every single one of us is that there are people that oppose us, okay? So this chapter deals with that, and I want us to pay attention to sort of like a different angle uh, to this story, but I think it's an important one. It's a good one for us to close. Uh, see, when we have rest from our enemies, there's music and there's joy and there's gladness because we have found purpose and things are right in its proper place and everything is right with the world. But in order to do that, we need to understand how to deal with our enemies. So when we look into this story, uh, number one, I want us to learn about the presence of enemies in our lives. Uh, number two, the purpose that enemies have. Some of you are saying, you know, they serve no purpose. They do serve a purpose. We'll get there. And, and then lastly, how to find or get rest from your enemies. Ultimately, that's what we desire. That's the hope. So first, uh, the presence of enemies. Uh, we learned last week that the arch enemies, the antagonist of the story uh, of the Jews, uh, is finally dealt with. And uh, not only is he exposed, but he ends up dying a death that he had prepared for Mordecai, the man in the story, that he had opposed, and because he opposed Mordecai, he now uh, was opposing 
all the Jews living in Persia at the time. He's a man filled with pride. He is uh, a racist, and he's out not just to get Mordecai, but his whole race. Now, many of us may have Mordecai's in our lives, people that have really set themselves to get us, whether uh, these are professional enemies or neighbors uh, or family members. Uh, But some of us don't have enemies like that. We have frenemies. Uh, You know what frenemies are? Frenemies are people uh, that are really nice to you. They're cordial at a surface level. But behind their, your back, they're out to get you. That's what frenemies are. And you see a lot of frenemies in the South, right? So you've been in the South. That's sort of like the culture. It's a culture that breeds frenemies. Um, our culture is very easy to identify enemies, and I'll get to that. But you're in the South, and, and they, they see you and say, hey, hon, how are you doing? I missed you so much. How's the family? We love you. And then you leave, and they're like, I hate that person. Right? I don't want him. It ain't my house. It ain't my parties. Right? That's how it works. Here, enemies are very visible. You just All it takes is for you to drive your car out of your driveway, and uh, they're cursing at you. Uh, they are flipping you the bird, they're treating you mean, and you go to restaurants and where you actually you should be served, even the waiters sometimes are frenemies, like they uh, are enemies, visible enemies, sorry, they're visible enemies. Some of us have more visible enemies than others, but nevertheless, we all have enemies and it's okay to have enemies, even Jesus had enemies, and Jesus says, you know, in this world you will have enemies, I just want you to treat your enemies unlike how most people treat their enemies. Uh, I want you to be nice to them, and I actually want you to love them. Uh, But it's normal. You should expect, even as a Christian, right, that you will have people that oppose you. Maybe they oppose you because you're too nice, and they're jealous, and they're envious. But nevertheless, you'll have visible enemies in your life. But besides the visible enemies that we all have, uh, we also have an enemy sometimes that we're always uh, very hard to be aware of, and we're not very aware of, and that's the internal enemy. You know, the Bible says that our flesh sometimes work against us, and works against actually the purpose that God has designed for us. While God wants you to use your resources and your good for the sake of others, uh, your sinful nature asks you to use the lives of others for your own good for the enhancement of your own time and your treasures and your talents, to build a name for yourself. While God wants you to be outward face, your sinful nature, your flesh, what the Bible calls the flesh, is inward focused, is focused on self. And the Apostle Paul recognized that in in his own life, and he's very honest about it. Romans 7, he shares about this inward enemy that we all have, which is our flesh, that many of us are not aware of. He says this, look, it happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. So you got to be aware of that, that you have a sinful nature that wants you to keep you uh, from living the life that God wants you to live as an instrument in his hands. He wants you to use everything else for your own sake instead of for the life of others. But besides 
this inward enemy and the visible enemies that we have in our lives, the Bible speaks of the supernatural enemy that we all have. And we're not aware of many times in our culture discourages to see him and think of him. But the Bible says that we have a supernatural enemy that's trying to keep us from fulfilling that calling of becoming instrument in God's hands for the sake of others. That is the devil. The apostle Peter, he writes to the church in Rome, and he's very intentional about getting them to be aware of that fact so that they're able to navigate life in the world and the sufferings and the persecutions with truth. He says that to them. Here's how he writes them. He says, stay alert. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Here's a picture that he paints of the devil. Like a roaring lion, hungry looking for something to devour. And how is he, he going to get you when you are not alert? You know, if you, if, you, if you watch any of the animal kingdom type of uh, shows or the animal channel, sorry, the animal channel shows and, and, you, and you see like a, a, a lion going for his kill, when is he trying to attack? You know, when uh, the other animals are out by the river or by uh, a water source and they're drinking and they're not expecting and they're not looking, they're coming, he's coming from behind and he's saying, if you're not alert, if you're not aware, you're going to get caught. So why is this point important? Because I want you to be aware that regardless of who you are, you have these three fears of, in, in, three spheres of enmity in your life. Now, the question becomes, how will you respond? How, you, how will you respond? How will you relate? How will you deal with your enemies? Uh, the enemies are the enemies that God has allowed to stand in our lives. They also fulfill a purpose. Many of us, like I said, don't think the enemies have any purpose. But I believe that God allows in his providence people to oppose us for a specific purpose. You know, I believe in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for our good. Not just the friends, but also the enemies. They are there for our own good. Now, and God allows that. Uh, I, I remember a professor that I had in seminary. And uh, when I was going through seminary, you know, obviously as you go through grad school or even when you're going through college, you have... Uh, term papers to turn in, you have reading assignments and all that. And, and sometimes I wouldn't get done with my reading assignments and, and I wouldn't finish my papers on time. And then I would go ask him for an extension and I would give him sometimes good excuses, right? I would say, hey, you know, I ran out of power last night type of thing, you know, or, or I, uh, Esau, I have a barrier with the language. It takes me three times as long to write a paper. And, and, and he would listen to all my excuses and he, and he would go, I understand, um, but you have missed a deadline. And I said, but professor, you know, these are my challenges. He said, look, all these challenges work for your sanctification, for your own growth. You know, we Christians say that sanctification is the growth process, the spiritual growth process that, that takes place in each of our lives. And he says, this is there, these problems, these, these uh, apparently these uh, obstacles are there for your own good. And I think that's the same with people as well in our own lives. We look at those that oppose us and we only see the bad in that and wish that they were never there. And we see them as obstacles when in reality you should see them as opportunities for you to rise above and to grow and to become all that God wants you to be. So think about this story, for instance, the story of Esther. 
the only reason why we're able to see the best out of Esther, we're able to see the best out of Mordecai, is because there is a man by the name of Haman, right? The only reason why we're able to see salvation was because there was a dark scheme and plan to kill the lives of many Jews. And someone needed to take the risk. Someone needed to be courageous. But unless there was Haman, they would not have had an opportunity to come out as courageous and to be an instrument for the sake of many. So enemies serve a purpose in our lives as well. You know, oftentimes I, in my own theological thinking, I think about this, I'm just going to give you an insight into my own theological head sometimes, you know. Uh, some people come to me and they ask me, hey, pastor, why do you think God allowed evil in the world? I get that Jesus has come to restore all things and, and uh, you know, and to restore peace in, 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 this, in this broken world, but why did he allow evil to come into the world in the first place? Have you ever been asked that question? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I think about that. Am, am I alone? But, uh, but here's, what, here's how I've, I've answered myself. I said, you know, look, Unless there was evil in the world, how else would we have known of the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God, right? If there was no place for the grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God to be demonstrated, we would have no idea that there was mercy and grace and abounding love in the being of God. And so enemies, they are opportunities. You ought to see them as opportunities that God is placing before you, people that oppose you, so that you can rise above and grow out of that. Uh, recently, I came across this essay written by Dan Allender. He is a Christian counselor, one of the best Christian counselors out there. And he's a professor as well. And he wrote this essay on the value of enemies. And I thought that was very interesting, very enlightening. It spoke to me at the time that I read it. And I want to read a few passages uh, to you from that essay. He says this, look, one of the best sources of perspective is enemies. If we can learn from them, then we can profit from anyone. Enemies serve at least two great benefits to us. Number one, they guide us to see our need for grace. And number two, they add clarity to our evolving understanding of truth. And so doing, our enemies gives us both a greater taste of true intimacy and purpose. A friend draws me to the intimacy of the banquet. An enemy compels me to see that the only way I will banquet with God is through the wonder of his forgiveness. I am a debtor to my enemy for being the postman who delivers my invitation to life. Now, here's what he's saying, okay? If, if you didn't get it, here's what he's saying. Here's the value that enemies bring to us. Number one, they speak the truth. And uh, you may not like what they have to say to you or, or what they're saying about you because you know their intentions and maybe they're jealous people. Maybe they just don't like you. Maybe they're racist. Maybe they're out there to get you, okay? You don't like their motivations, but it would be silly for you to think that everything that they say about you is wrong. They may actually, may actually have a point. You may actually be that annoying, okay? And they are, they are serving as God's instrument to show the flaw, to expose the flaws and the weaknesses that you have. Now, it hurts because you know their motivation, but nevertheless, they may be speaking the truth. And instead of completely ignoring what they have to say, is to stop and pause and think what they're saying. Is there truth to that? 
Maybe not all of it is truth, but maybe they're exposing something that's a blind spot to you. But here's the second way that uh, Dan Allen says that enemies serve a purpose in our lives is because he's saying that through their brokenness and their weakness and their opposition of us, we're also able to see our own sin and our own need of grace. When you look at someone, you see that person is so messed up, they need God. It's because if you can spot it, you got it, okay? That's what my wife likes to say. So if you see in somebody jealousness or jealousy, that's because you got it, okay? If you can spot in somebody like a, a shady work ethics, it's because maybe you got it. Okay, so if you're able to spot the sin in someone, that's Jesus' parody of this, the speck and, and your neighbor's eye and the log in your own eye, right? That's the idea. If you can spot sin in someone, it's because you have it as well. And because you have it, you need as much grace, the grace of God, the grace of Jesus, as they need as well. It draws you to the Savior, to the banquet of the Savior, like Dan Allender is explaining here. You know, um, a martial artist know this. If you've done any martial arts, there's, there's a code of honor towards your opponent. Code of honor towards your opponent. And uh, I don't know if any of you guys like, you know, the fighting game or if you like the UFC or MMA. Some of you guys think that that's about the ungodliest thing that somebody can watch. Uh, my wife doesn't like it at all. But last night... I was, uh, I was in front of the TV. I opened my laptop. I was going through my slides this morning. And I was going to preach this morning. And I had a TV on. There was a UFC fight going on. And I know some of the guys that I trained with before. And I was wanting to watch their fight. And uh, my wife, she walks by. She says, I don't understand this sporto. You know, especially after the match, after the fight. And I don't know if you've seen this. You know, these guys, they're, they're, they're uh, punching each other sometimes on the ground. They're pounding each other, and they're all bloody. But after the match, they're hugging each other and treating one another as brothers. So what is this? Right? You just did this to my face, and now, and now I'm loving and hugging on you. It's because martial artists understand that unless you have an opponent, you cannot fight, right? So they give you the opportunity to show your gift. But more than that, they expose you of your weaknesses and your flaws, the holes in your game. When I compete, I think sometimes I'm better at something that I actually am, and I get an opponent that actually exposes that aspect of my game. You know, take it to tennis, take it to football, or whatever sport that you like to practice. An opponent will expose your deficiencies. You will be a fool if you don't go back and you work on those deficiencies, right? They're a gift in that sense. Now, that, that picture that I had up is actually interesting because the guy, can you put the, the, the picture back, please? Uh, the guy who actually uh, has his arms wrapped around this other guy's shoulders, he used to make maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars each fight. That fight with this guy right there, right, this, this guy with the uh, with, uh, shaved head and the beard, earned him millions of dollars. He became automatically rich after this fight. So he's like... Man, you can do this to my face. I love you because of what you have done to my bank account, right? But there is a value there that we need to think about it. And there's a passage in the Bible. You can take that down. Sorry. I don't want people to have nightmares tonight. Um, there's a passage in the Bible uh, where, where David is being confronted by this priest. 
uh, because his son Absalom is out there to get him and to take his kingdom from his hands. And this guy stands up and says to David, you saw it coming. God is doing this to you because you have blood in your hands and you're going to lose your kingdom. And it's interesting that that guy starts to curse out David. Actually, the words that we read in the passage in 2 Samuel is that he is cursing David out. One of David's soldiers, right? One of David's soldiers is standing and listening to all of that. The words are coming back to him. He says, who is this guy to curse my Lord like that? I'm going to go up, pick up my sword, and cut him to pieces. One of David's fiercest warriors said that. And David says, no, 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 no. Sit down. And this is what David says to him. Look, if he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? See that? He says, maybe God is using that enemy, that man that's opposing me, to speak to me, to get to me. And if that's the case, why am I going to tear him down? David then said to Abishai and all of his officials, my son, who is in my own flesh, is trying to take my life. How much more than this Benjamite? Next slide. Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I'm receiving today. It may be that the David and his men continue to... Oh, sorry. Uh... That first sentence is off. David and his men, it starts there. David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite to him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. And David is doing nothing because he has used that opportunity to rise above and to grow. How will you respond? That's the most important question. You know, I've learned in my own life to see the value of my enemies. You know, I remember when, I, when we moved here 10 years ago, I say this uh, every once in a while, 10 years ago I moved here and I went around and I was trying to, you know, with a group of friends trying to replant this church. It was in a very difficult situation. I was asking local pastors to help me out, to pray with me, uh, to send me people and maybe give us a little bit of money so that I can hire staff to help me out. And the answer was always, I'll pray for you, but I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what, if you're going to work here in Miami. I'll, I'll give you three years. And I heard that, and, and I could have caved in and retreated, but I took that and said, okay, what they're saying is it's very difficult here. I better be prepared for the type of ministry that I'm about to face here in the city. And I'm going to do everything I can to prove them wrong, right? So I work extra hard, you know, uh, in the work that, had been entrusted to me. So how will you respond? That's the most important question. Will you face the music? This is uh, a musical theme to this series. Will you face the music? Will you stay where you're at or will you rise above? Ultimately, the only way where you'll find rest from your enemies is if you learn to rise above when you are faced with opposition. That leads us obviously to the last point. How do we get rest from our enemies? You know, we learn in the story that Esther and Mordecai secured rest for God's people from their enemies. But what we learn in the story is that they were only able to secure temporary rest. Because the way in which Esther and Mordecai found 
to find and secure rest from their enemies or their enemy was to actually do away and kill their enemies. So Haman was not only exposed, the lives of the Jews uh, were preserved and Haman was killed in Mordecai's place, but also the king gave both Esther and Mordecai permission to say to their people, look, you have the right to kill anyone that stands as a threat to the life of your family and your own life. And in the previous chapter, I skipped chapter 8, right? But in the previous chapter, the Jews on that day, they killed 75,000 of their enemies. And now obviously there's peace because they killed their enemies. Now that is one way to get peace from your enemies is to kill your enemies. But that's not the ultimate and that's not the best way. And by the way, let me open a parenthesis here. When you read stories like that in the Bible, which by the way, you will read a lot in the New Testament. There's a lot of blood, a lot of violence in the Old Testament. And you're saying, well, this is in the Bible. It does not mean that the Bible condones this type of behavior, right? When you read in the Bible, for instance, that um, Jacob had two wives, it does not mean that polygamy is okay with God. In fact, if you want to go ahead and be polygamous, you'll have the same problems that Jacob had. He had a messed up, screwed up family, okay? So, this is indicative. This is not prescriptive. The Bible is not prescribing this. It's always a better way. This is indicative. I've imagined, even myself, like reading this book, I was like, man, could there have been an alternate ending to this story? What if when the Jews were allowed to kill their own enemies, and they ended up killing 75,000 of them, what if they had opened their homes? What if they had brought their enemies in? What if they had feed them? What if they had treated them with mercy and grace and kindness? It would have been maybe a different story. But it's not here. And the reason why it's not here, it's because every single book of the Bible is pointing in contrast to the ultimate story of God. Right? There's something lacking. There's something lacking. There's something wanting in this story that it's fulfilled 500 years later when the ultimate Better and truer Esther comes into the scene, Jesus. We, like the Jews, had a sentence of death over our heads. And he serves as a mediator between us and God. And because of his mediation, we are saved and our lives are preserved. But how did Jesus treat his enemies? How did Jesus treat us? By becoming us. By taking upon ourselves our enmity. We read in Ephesians 2.16 that Jesus killed the enmity that was between us and God. And therefore the enmity between one another. And that's why we're all the same. Because Jesus destroyed that enmity. But he destroyed that enmity by taking our place of enmity before God. And on the cross he was destroyed in our place so that we wouldn't have to be destroyed. So that... Enmities could now become sons and daughters who are partakers of the love and the grace of God. How did Jesus treat his enemies? With the violence of grace. See, grace is powerful. Grace is violent. Man, I can't think of a better example. I've said this many times, given this example many times. Like when you read or you watch Les Mis, Les Mis by uh, Victor Hugo, you know, there's that character, Jean Valjean, who was a thief, went to jail because he was a thief. When he got released, he was taken in by this priest. This priest gave him a bed, a shelter, and food. And one night, after eating out of the priest's table, he decides to steal 
the priest's silver candlesticks and started a life on his own. And he steals in the middle of the night and leaves the house and he's caught by the police. The police recognize where those objects came from. He is brought back to the priest. The police say to the priest, hey, we found this thief with your belongings. You do what you, you tell us what you want us to do with him. And the priest now has this life in his hands, has Jean Valjean's life in his hands. And he says, you know what? I actually gave them to him so that he could start a new life. Let him go. And everyone is shocked. If you're reading the story, if you're watching the movie, you're shocked because now he just poured out lavish grace, right? He unleashed grace in a violent way in this man's life. And he walks up to him and he says, Jean Valjean, with these silver candlesticks, I bought your life back. Live your life this way towards others. And he goes on to live a life of mercy and generosity towards the poor and the oppressed because his life had been ravished by grace. See, if you have had an experience of grace, right, if you were able to be a partaker of grace, if you're able to see Jesus doing that for you, that gives you the courage, that gives you the power to destroy and find rest from your enemies, not in the way, in the fashion that the world and our own sinful natures tells us to do, but in this better way, God's way, Jesus' way, the way of grace. It's the way of redemption. You know, I was profoundly affected by the story that one time was told to me uh, at the Sonship Seminars, the story of two brothers. And one brother, when their father had died, he found a way through paperwork to steal his brother's inheritance. And obviously that brother that did not receive any part of the inheritance from the father that had passed away, and he knew that he had been cheated by his own brother, was angry at his brother. And he said, you know, one day I'm going to find him. I'm going to make him pay. And many years went on, many years went by, and one day he was walking on this alley, and he sees on the other side of the street his brother walking in his direction. And the uh, story goes that his heart started to beat fast, started to race, you know, uh, his, 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 the blood went all the way to his head, and he clenched his fist, and he says, I'm going to get this bastard right now. And as he's walking towards his brother, he looks at his face, and he sees the face of his father in his brother's face. And for that quick second, that enemy becomes a friend. And more than that, a brother once again. And now they're hugging one another, these two grown men, and this busy street and city center. Everyone is looking, what's wrong with these guys? There was reconciliation. And the enmity was destroyed because he was able to see in his brother's face the face of his father. You know, you can fight back your enemies and use violence against them and seek out to destroy their lives. Or you can choose to see in their face the image of God because every single human being was made in the image of God. And you can see in his sin and you can see in their flaws your own sin and your own flaws and that can drive you towards the Father so that your life now is free from all hatred. And now you're finally released to be an instrument in God's hands for the salvation of others and the good of others. Because you have understood that at one point you stood as God's enemy. And he loved you by giving up his life for you. When you get the gospel... 
that you have been brought in by the creator God of the universe, who you have opposed and who you still oppose, man, that gives you the courage and the power to destroy enmity by exercising the violence of grace and loving your own enemies. And maybe some enemies in your life, because of that, as a result of that, will become friends. Let me give you two practical takeaways out of this sermon today. Number one, focus less on your enemies and more on the goodness of Jesus for you. You know, sometimes our heads and our hearts are filled by the things that people do to us and you can't do anything and you can't go to work. It keeps you from working. It keeps you from sleeping. Some of you can't go to bed at night because of the things people have done to you. And you start to fest, that starts to fester in your own heart and it takes root in your life and then all of a sudden that paralyzes you. When that begins to take hold of you, Will you stop it and will you focus on the goodness of God for you and all the many ways how you have opposed God in your life and how Jesus is still steadfast, loving by your side? Will you focus on that? That will tear down the defense in your own life towards your enemy. And then secondly, will you be less defensive and more forgiving? Less defensive and more forgiving. See, grace affords you the possibility of being less defensive towards your own flaws. Why? Because Jesus died for all of your sins. Jesus didn't die for your goodness. Your goodness doesn't need salvation. Your sins is what keeps you from God, and Jesus died for that. And so it's okay to admit sin and flaw because it's that that leads me to the Savior, right? It's my own flaws. It's okay I don't need to be defensive. I'm a sinner. Yeah, you're right. Guilty as charged. And will I be more forgiving in the same fashion that God has forgiven you? I usually wrap my sermons um, with a prayer. I pray myself. Today I want you to pray with me. In the cover of your bulletin, there is a uh, prayer by St. Francis of Assisi. And I want us to pray this together. And I want you to think through as you're praying this as well. This is a great uh, way to close this series, instrument, because the first line is, Lord, make me an instrument. Make me an instrument. Will you pray this with me? Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. Where there is offense, let me bring pardon. Where there is discord, let me bring union. Where there is error, let me bring truth. Where there is doubt, let me bring faith. Where there is despair, Let me bring hope where there's darkness. Let me bring your light. Where there's sadness, let me bring joy. O Master, let me not seek as much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that one receives. It is in self-forgetting that one finds. It is in pardoning that one is pardoned. It is in dying that one is raised to eternal life. God bless you.